Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Srini Pillay, CEO of Neuro Business Group, part-time assistant professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School, and most importantly for today's conversation, author of Think Less, Learn More, and the US title is Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. Welcome to the show, Srini. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure, a real pleasure to have you on the show. And you were giving me the Italian title, and my Italian isn't that hot, but I'd love if you'd share that with our audience as well. Absolutely. The Italian title really took me by surprise when the publishers asked about it, but their their title is Il Potere del Cazzeggio, which translates to the power of effing around, which I thought was a pretty uh, great use of the colloquial term um, to indicate what the book was actually about. Yeah, and, and that is key. I learned so much from this book. As I said to you when I was reaching out to you, this book spoke to my soul, and it speaks to the essence of this show, which is there's a veil on how things are done we're expected to do things a certain way. And your book gives a framework and lots of exercise about how people can think differently. And, and that's what's fantastic. But to get started, I suppose the power of focus and unfocus and when to use both is the theme of the book. But I'd love if that came from your mouth and, and you tell us what it's about, Srini. Sure. So I, you know, I think throughout my life, I've recognized the value of focus and I've recognized how important it is to stay focused so that we can get tasks done. But I think both for myself and for my patients in psychiatry and my clients in executive coaching, I realized that focus alone was just not doing it for for me or for the people I was working with. And that really the key to being able to be productive and creative involves a combination of focus and unfocus. And so this book was inspired by the fact that I think uh, in this day and age when speed is really uh, the key key word, it's the word on most people's minds, and where people are thinking about getting stuff done, I thought it really made sense to write a book about the power of unfocus, because people always associate unfocus with distraction, and don't necessarily understand that there are disadvantages to focus as well. So in the book, I think I wholeheartedly acknowledge that focus is very important, but that there are specific disadvantages to focus And that by stimulating the brain's unfocused circuit, we can actually add to our intelligence, add to productivity, and add to creativity. And what I love you've you've done in the book, Srini, is you're an MD, so you're you're using science and and psychiatry and NLP and every aspect of the mind to prove this. This is an anecdotal evidence. You're actually showing this is scientifically proven. You, You cite so many cases and studies throughout the book to prove this. But what I find key is we're trained both in school and education systems and universities, and then when we go to work, to focus. And, and actually, that not focusing, you're seen as you know random thinking, you're seen as maybe not so efficient in your work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you see that as key to our future as critical thinkers. To make it simple in terms of, so why do I have a problem with focus alone? Well, here are my specific issues with focus. The first thing is that focus drains the brain of energy. And one key study, for example, took two groups of people and showed them a video. One group looked at the video with intense focus, and the other group looked at the video as usual. And what they found was that the group that looked at the video with intense focus, when they asked both groups afterwards to help in a moral dilemma where they had to save someone, the group that focused couldn't care less, whereas the group 
that just watched it as usual really cared. And when they fed the focus group glucose, they started to care again, indicating that focus can sap the brain of energy to the point that you really don't care about what's going on around you. Now, if you look at this from the perspective of employee engagement, if you look at the statistics, they're pretty dismal. You know, in the U.S., uh, only 33% of workers are, are engaged. Uh, in the U.K., I think it's something more like 8%. And uh, around the world, the percentage is 13%, which I think speaks to the fact that focus, to a certain extent, is making people not engaged because it's draining the brain of energy. The second point uh, against focus is that focus prevents you from seeing what's going on around you. So if you're totally in intensely focused at something that's going on in front of your eyes, in fact, if you're, not looking at, if you're not looking at what's going on around you, you're not going to pay attention. And I think a classic example of this is Anne Wang, who invented the word processor and was interested in creating word processor too. So he was really focused on creating the next version, not realizing that the PC was the next trend. So if you don't look at what's happening around you, you don't look at the competition, you actually can miss out on what's happening. The third thing is that if you work with your nose to the grindstone, you actually don't notice what's coming up ahead of you. So for example, if you look at studies of millennials, most millennials actually understand that robots are probably going to take over a lot of jobs. Yet a lot of them are not really making accommodations for this in their training and in their work. And that's because if you're just focused on the day-to-day, -day, you're not paying attention to upcoming trends and you're not paying attention to the future. The fourth thing is that focus is great if you want to just go from start to finish in a task, but it doesn't allow you to make associations and it doesn't allow you to draw inspiration from associations. So, you know, a classic example of this is Picasso, who studied the, the, the mathematics of the French mathematician, Henri Poincaré. And what Picasso did was, he, a lot of people say, well, why would a, an artist be listening to a mathematician? Well, upon hearing Poincaré's theories, he was inspired to think about the fourth dimension. This inspired him to paint Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. And as a result of this, Cubist art was launched. So even though he was focused on his art, he paid attention to math and as a result of this, was able to make associations across the space. And so, uh, and so I think associations are a key component of what unfocus can bring you. And then finally, focus is great in terms of identity. It helps you tap into who you are at, at a fundamental and definitional level. But un the unfocused circuits in the brain overlap largely with the self-awareness circuits in the brain and the self-regulation circuits in the brain. So if you really want to be connected to yourself and you really want to be able to control your emotions, unfocus is one way you can begin to prepare the brain. So my issue with focus is that it drains energy, it prevents you from seeing the competition, it prevents you from seeing upcoming trends, it prevents you from making connections, and it prevents you from being self-connected, which I think is a pretty decent argument for, well, why don't we unfocus, and why don't we learn to unfocus in a way that's actually going to enrich our lives? It ties beautifully into things like the innovator's dilemma, and, and you mentioned, for example, the case of the electric toothbrush and a company like Gillette missing that, for example. Exactly, because Gillette had, you know, they had different divisions and they had the, the toothbrush division, the battery division, and an appliance division. But because there was no talk across silos, they were not able to actually lead the market with the electric toothbrush. So I think for a lot of us, 
the problem is not that we don't know the answers to how to move forward. It's not that we don't know the answers about how, what to do with our lives. It's that we make choices without tapping into our deepest resources. In fact, my inspiration for this book was really human ingenuity. Like I had seen in my practice over and over again how people were missing out, not on other people's ideas, not on things that they needed to get from the outside, but on the richest parts of themselves because they were just not activating this unfocused network. Because when you make connections, you really begin to see what's in front of you. You know, for example, I was talking to a client recently and he was saying, you know, it's funny, I work about the same number of hours as my wife, but I make about five or six times the amount of money that she makes. Which, and it's not like I'm smarter or that, it's really the choice that I made. But what's also true is that I have a friend who works less than I work, but makes about probably, you know, 11 times the amount that I currently make. Which means that I haven't spent enough time thinking about my choices. It's less about what I'm doing and more about the fact that I don't set aside time to go deeply into thinking about things. And I think as it relates to the innovator's dilemma, on the one hand, we have processes like Google Sprint, for example, the design sprint, which I think is a really great way to come up with an idea, test the idea, see if it works and decide whether to take it to market. Yet on the other hand, I would say that we need to balance this with the notion of being able to come up with something over time with depth. And so I think a lot of innovators would say that while speed may appear to be critical, you don't want to ignore the depth of an idea because the depth of an idea is not really based on logic. You know, if you think about Donkey Kong, for example, can you imagine going to a board and saying, hey, I got this great idea for a game. Like, why don't we get a, a, a bunch of gorillas and have them throw? <laughs> you know, it's like, what, like you know, most people would say, well, what are you talking about? Like, why would you want a bunch of gorillas throwing barrels? Or, and, and yet, you know, you can't rationalize that, but it's driven from some depth and authenticity of your own that somehow translates into people becoming addicted to that. You know, I think another example, someone who I really deeply admire in terms of his thought process, although I don't know him personally, is Bernard Arnault, who leads the LVMH company. It's a, you know, it's, it's funny because everyone always says these days, you really have to find out what your customer needs. Well, luxury goods, have not, nobody needs a luxury good to be alive. It's actually based on people's dreams rather than what they need. And one of the things that's interesting about Arnault when he talks about how he treats his innovators, is he says they do focus groups in terms of what people need, but rather than, than following what people need, they give them what they believe they truly want, even if they're not aware of it. And, and I think a really crazy example of this is they came up with this cream called gangrene. Now, who would think that a cream <laughs> called gangrene is going to get sold out? You know, like you, you would be like grossed out by that. You'd be like, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to put a cream called gangrene in my hands? Or why would you make a pocketbook and then have a bunch of safety pins all over it? Well, there's something to the non-rational brain. There's something to art and there's something to complexity. And there's something to contradiction. And I think we don't examine these non-logical parts of our brains. And as a result, we're missing out on a lot in life. We've so much to talk about and the individual a little bit more. But this point of not exploring paradoxes, for example, or contradictions in the workplace. So a corporate, for example, somebody who does think that way and somebody who is actually a, an outlier in a company like that, and they're often misunderstood, they often leave, 
they often find it hard to fit into a company like that. And then they become an entrepreneur and go on to huge success if they find a way. But how can a, a corporation accept and embrace somebody like that? I think in general, by thinking more openly, because I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion, a lot of people talk about gender and they talk about race, which I think are pretty legitimate and they're important to be able to recognize. But there's much more to us than just gender and race in terms of diversity. I think their personality styles, uh, you know, thinking patterns, we, we differ from one another in those, in those ways. And so I think specifically one of the paradoxes of corporations, which I think is fantastic, is on the one hand, we talk about diversity and inclusion. And on the other hand, we talk about having some kind of coherent culture that brings people together. And I think within that paradox lies the opportunity to bring diverse people together to be able to create a culture. So if you're looking for a real life example of that, just step into a New York nightclub and you'll see you know, all kinds of people, you know, introverts, extroverts, different races, different genders. And there is a culture to that nightclub that defines what that is. I think it's the, it's the, the fact that something about that, about that whole potpourri of different personalities, it's, it's, it's pretty sexy and it's interesting. And it's, make you, and it's what makes you want to go back there. And I think to an extent, when corporations are producing uh, things that, that they want to appeal to a wide variety of people, then they probably want to have a culture like that. On the other hand, I think if you look at a waspy country club where there's a very specific way of being, or if you look at some kind of gang in an urban neighborhood, there's a very specific way of being. There are different ways of being together. So I'm not someone who says... Everybody needs to have diversity of every kind or that everybody needs to be included. But I do think that corporations would benefit from asking themselves, is there a role for, the, for this person who I think is a misfit? Because on the one hand, I'm saying this person doesn't fit within the culture. On the other hand, I'm saying I want diversity. Well, if you want diversity, you're probably not going to have every single person fit within the culture. This introvert may go on to create great things or this person with wild ideas may have a place within the company where they can actually sort of bridge different uh, groups within the company. You know, you can create an innovation officer who is there specifically for, for bridging silos. So I think that there's a place for introverts and there's a place for wild thinkers within a company. And I think that to the extent that you can match a person with a job, you, you have a winning formula. And I think it was Einstein who said something to the effect of, if you give a, a, a doctor a job of being a carpenter, you'll probably think that the doctor is pretty dumb or vice versa. But if you can find a person whose competencies and whose personalities match to a particular job, you're more likely to be able to win from that formula. And of course, there's a paradox within that as well. But, but I think to your point, if companies can ask the question, how might this person help my company grow? They might actually have a very different um, answer than if they simply said this person doesn't fit in. You talk about this as well, the possibility mindset. So open-ended questions rather than a problem question. I mean, the possibility mindset is, is I think, crucial. It's, it's the one thing, it's related to the growth mindset. And it basically means rather than asking, am I going to succeed? You ask, how do other people in my position succeed? So for example, if you take a working mother who's working for a corporation and it says, I just don't have time to be an entrepreneur because I go to work, I've got to prepare food in the morning, I go to work nine to five, I come back home, if I'm lucky, I get to the gym 
and then I've got to cook dinner and make sure I go over homework with my kids. Like, there's just no time to do this. My question would be, firstly, I would say that's totally right in terms of the way you're running your life currently. But what I would say is, is there any other working mother in the world who might choose a certain sacrifice or who might choose a certain way of being who might achieve the goal that you're after? Like, look for the exception. Because when you believe in something and you lean into it, the reality, and we know this from placebo studies, is that just believing that something is going to work actually increases dopamine in the brain. So it creates, it stimulates the reward pathways in the brain, and it also increases opioids, which decreases stress. So I'm not saying you need to spend your whole day in this kind of I believe state, but I think you know sometimes we get into work and you open up your email box and you have email after email that's you know really awful, and then suddenly you start feeling like, oh my God, this day is not going the right way. How do I deal with this? I just got rejected here. This person's asking me to do more work. What I would say is do a mindset shift. And when you do a mindset shift, what's important to do is to say, okay, things are happening the way they're happening. I can shift my mindset to the possibility mindset to make this happen. And this is one of those 15-minute exercises that's an unfocused exercise that I recommend in the book. And I'll say, you know, just off the bat, a lot of people, when I say, all I'm asking you to do is to build one or two unfocused times into your day. A lot of people will say, I just don't have the time to do that. And my response to that generally is, we know from research studies that we daydream approximately 46.9% of the day. So we all daydream that amount of time, which means we do actually have the time to learn how to daydream more productively or to build time into our days to unfocus. Yeah, and I, I see that exactly like going to the gym, Srini, where if you build the gym into your day and it's part of your, your routine, you will get much better results because you're following a program. It's it's specific intended work and it's intentional work and and versus somebody who might wander into a gym and pick up a dumbbell and do a few bicep curls and then walk out again throughout the day. I, I saw that as an analogy for it. And you're just doing that with your mind. You're going to the mind gym and you're going, I'm going to actually build a program into my day. And and one of them was that that idea of focus on focus. I, I'd love to talk about some of the other tools and the other exercises you give throughout the book, if you would. Sure. Yeah, I, I think building unfocused time into your day is, is really critical. You know, the gym, I think, is a good example for me because I I don't particularly love going to the gym. Uh, and I think sometimes I work out just so that I can eat a lot of the things I like to eat. Uh, but I was thinking this morning, you know, it's Christmas Eve, and I was thinking, um, you know, there's no way I'm going to actually work out unless I build this in. And so I asked my trainer if he would FaceTime with me because uh, I'm in a different city. And I, I just thought if I had him there, I know I would be committed to it. And just having that time built in meant that I had to get up, go to the gym, take an hour, work out. And now I feel much better about my day because that time was scheduled. But what I would say to anyone out there who's thinking, how do I build unfocused time into my day? What I would say is, think about how you usually run your day. Like most of us run our days with focus, 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 fatigue. And rather than being focus, 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 fatigue, why not go focus, unfocus, focus, unfocus, focus, and then by the end of the day, because you've actually primed your brain, you're not running on empty. Most of us you know, after lunch, for example, it's always a drag because you feel like, oh, my God, I feel like sleeping. You know, I feel like, you know, I don't have enough energy. And we pull ourselves through that. A lot of times mid-afternoon, we're like, I really need my coffee. Well, 
you know, studies show that there are certain things that may even be superior to coffee for freshening up your brain if you just build these 15 minutes into your day. So here are a few techniques that you can start trying. The first is called positive constructive daydreaming, which you know, may seem like, like, like an oxymoron. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, what, what is that? Like, why would you, how can daydreaming be positive and constructive? Well, Jerome Singer, who studied this phenomenon since the 1950s, found that, that slipping into a daydream is not helpful. Uh, you know, certainly uh, ruminating of ideas, like let's say you had too much to drink at a party last night, and then the next day you're thinking, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have said that. That kind of daydreaming is not helpful. But what is helpful is positive, constructive daydreaming. And there are three things that you need to do to distinguish this from the unhelpful type of daydreaming. The first is plan it into your day. Choose any 15-minute interval, whether it's 15 minutes after lunch, 15 minutes mid-afternoon, any time when you would ordinarily uh, be in a slump anyway, and build this into your day. The second is studies show that it is much more likely to be effective if you daydream while you are doing something low-key. So the idea is daydreaming doesn't work as well if you're just sitting at your desk. You actually need to be doing something like walking or knitting or gardening. You know, if you're at home, certainly knitting or gardening may work. If you're, if you're at work, then going for a walk may be helpful. And there are a few things here that I point out in the book that I think are, are particularly important to remember. The first is, if you're wanting to be creative, walking by itself, um, like on a treadmill, is not as effective as walking outside. So if you're going to walk, walk outside. Secondly, when you walk, if you walk in a rectangle, like around the block, then you are not as creative than if you walk on a curvy path. So if you're going to be daydreaming, as I said, the second step is do something low key. If you choose to be walking, walk outside after lunch and choose some kind of curvy path, not just around the block. And that will increase your creativity. The third thing is when you start, according to Singer, you start with positive, wishful imagery. So while you're walking, and of course, you've got to be safe. You can't be daydreaming when you're crossing the road. You know, but when you walk, you can go to a local park, for example, that's nearby your workplace. And and while you're walking, you start with positive, wishful images, you know, lying on a yacht, lying on the beach, running through the woods with your dogs, any of those things. And what you actually find is that those three things, building it into your day, uh, being able to do something low key, and, and thirdly, starting with positive, wishful imagery and just letting your mind roam will actually increase your creativity. And it also causes what we call attention cycling which means that your focus brain gets time to rest so that when you, when you need to go back to work, it actually gives you more energy. So, so that's what positive constructive daydreaming is. And it's been shown to increase creativity and increase productivity by freshening up your attention circuits in the brain. Um, one of the things I should say off the bat is that the unfocused circuit in the brain is called the default mode network, which abbreviates to DMN, which we used to think of as the do mostly nothing network. But in reality, this network works a lot during our downtime. So we want to learn how to prime this network in effective ways. The second technique is quite simple. It's napping. Five to 15 minutes of napping will give you one to three hours of clarity, which is pretty remarkable, right? A lot of us choose not to nap after lunch. And as a result, we, we drag ourselves through the work. But if you just took five to 15 minutes off, you'd get one to three hours of fresh brain activity. And a lot of companies like Google, Zappos, actually have napping pods that encourage this as part of their culture. The third thing 
I think it's doodling. And doodling is particularly helpful when uh, when you're trying to concentrate on something. So let's say you wanna, you're on a conference call. A lot of people would really try to attend to every word that someone is saying. So even now when you're listening to me, take out a pen and try to doodle. Because Jackie Andrade and her colleagues found that when they took two groups of people and they had them listen to a telephone call that was incredibly boring, and they said, I want you to remember the names of eight people and places, the group that doodled had 29% better memory, which means that when you are actually doodling, your brain is less like a stiff sponge. It's much more absorbent. It's looser. You're activating this default mode network, this unfocused circuit. And as a result, memory is enhanced because the information that's coming in is not being received by something stiff. The fourth example, and there are many more besides this, but the fourth example that I'll mention is one that's one of my personal favorites, which is psychological Halloweenism, which is a term that I came up with uh, because of a study that was done where they took two groups of people and they asked, uh, they asked one group of people to embody the personality of an eccentric poet. And they asked the other group of people to embody the personality of a rigid librarian. Now, of course, not all poets are eccentric and not all librarians are rigid. But because they, they had studied these stereotypes, they asked them to embody them, and then they gave them a creative problem to solve. Now, typically, uh, the kind of problem you get to solve in an experiment like this is, I'm going to give you a word, and I've, you've got a minute, and I want you to give me as many uses for it as you can. So here's the word brick. And so you've got to think about house, stairs, wall, I mean, all kinds of things. But the people who embodied the personality of the eccentric poet was statistically significantly more likely to become creative than the people who embodied the personality of the rigid librarian. And even when the same people crossed groups, it wasn't the people that mattered, it was the personality that you imagined yourself to be that matters. So if you're at an innovation meeting and you decide, listen, we wanna create this new product, we're not sure what it is, one fun thing you can do is choose a personality who you think would solve this problem and think like that person, not like yourself. And really what that means is not that you're not necessarily thinking like yourself, but you're not restricting yourself by your habits of thinking. And by stepping outside of your habits, you are much more likely to become innovative. I also say to people, you can do this at the dinner table with your family. You can do this on a date, you know, maybe not a first date. It might be a bit strange, <laughs> but you can do it on a date as well. And I, I think these techniques, positive, constructive daydreaming, possibility thinking, napping, uh, you know, walking as a separate activity, even if you're not daydreaming, uh, doodling and psychological Halloweenism are things you can build into at least two to three times a day. You know, in, you can say, for example, I'm going to go to work at nine. At 11, I usually get a little tired. So at 11, I'm going to practice possibility thinking or I'm going to practice um, some kind of, or I'm going to doodle. And then after lunch, when you feel like you're really tired, you can nap for five minutes. You can go for a walk at the end of lunch. You know, if you're mid-afternoon and if you're deciding what to do, you can also use one of these unfocused techniques. Again, any of them, possibility thinking, psychological Halloweenism. You can schedule a meeting where people can talk to one another. And so by the end of the day, you're not running on empty because you've taken time out to give your brain a chance. And I think a lot of people are afraid of being unfocused. And and for you know, for good reason. I think people are afraid that they'll be accused of being distracted or not concentrating on work, well, tie this, these new habits into some kind of productivity. See if, in fact, you do do more. Set a clock so that you're accountable 
ask someone in the office to wake you up if you're napping. Just make sure that you have this accountability set up around you so that you can change your brain. But I can tell you there's plenty of examples that I give in the book as well. You know, people like Steve Jobs who took time off to just walk around and think broadly in an ashram in India in 1974, and then starts Apple in 1976. You know, Bill Gates who takes two think weeks a year just to have this kind of um, sort of off time. And, you know, he was able to make some pretty significant changes in his life after these times to think. Mark Zuckerberg, when he was wondering what to do about Facebook, approached Steve Jobs and asked this question, got the recommendation for unfocused time, took it, and had a complete turnaround. So there are lots of examples from the business world as well of needing to build in unfocus. And I think if people really think deeply about what this can add to their days, they will realize that it will add a lot. We so need those champions in the world, those people you mentioned. We need those heroes to go, look, it's okay. And and this is, you mentioned people are fearful of being seen as distracted. And when you think, you know, even in Google and places like that, people are almost afraid to use the pods to go to sleep because they're kind of, oh, that guy's always napping or that guy's always daydreaming or whatever it is. And it's almost like a paradigm shift is needed in society or in business world to go, this is actually much better. And this is why I think your work needs to be shared. The world needs to hear this. The people I know who do practice pieces of this do it almost secretively, and they're hiding it from their organization, even though it's benefiting the organization greatly. Absolutely. You know, I, I had a, an example of this show up many times in my life. Uh, I would say one of the notable times was during my residency at Harvard, where you know, I'd come from another country. I'm from South Africa originally. I, you know, I came to Harvard. I wanted to work really hard. I felt happy about getting in. And in my second year, I worked all hours of the day, you know, day and night. And when it came to my first quarter assessment, I thought, you know, I've been working so hard. I've read pretty much beyond what I was supposed to read. I stayed in the unit, saw all my patients. I knew I was going to get a really good review, or, or so I thought. And my first review went like this. You know, people said, you know, it's obvious you're ahead of your class in terms of reading. You've read all these things. You're seeing more patients than anyone else. You're going to be a great clinician. But we are really worried about you. And I said, well, you know, what are they worried about? And they said, well, we don't see you sitting on the park bench just talking to your colleagues. We don't see you going off to Walden for a swim. We don't see you. We see you go to 100% of your didactics. Like that, those are, these are not the signs of an independent thinker. Like if we wanted to just, you know, teach you how to be a slave, Harvard is probably not the place for you. We want to develop original thinkers and we want to develop people who are able to have downtime so that they can actually think more deeply and more profoundly. So what we want to see is we love the hard work, but please set aside some time so that you can enrich the way you develop as a thinker. And it was, you know, it took me aback because I came from a learning culture that was very much, you know, work hard morning till evening, finish everything. And so I, it, it initially was a little bit of a strain, but what I realized was that by doing that, my thinking became much broader. I was able to recognize that I didn't just want to be a researcher, I also wanted to be a clinician. I didn't just want to understand the brain, I wanted to understand funkier things about human psychology. I didn't just want to be in science, I, I also wanted to be a musician and have that manifest. And, so right now, you know, I, I work in a lot of different fields. I work in biotechnology. I'm writing a musical. I work as an executive coach. I teach brain-based medicine. I have technology startups. And it's not because 
there's some kind of sort of amazing brilliance that's coming out of nowhere. The reality is that we're all wired for creativity. But a recent study showed that under conditions of uncertainty, if you look at what people associate to the word creativity, they associate the words vomit and agony, which means that even though we say we want to be creative, in reality, the brain rejects that because of the uncertainty associated with that. Yet, although there's a small piece of creativity that's inherited, largely creativity can be acquired. And it's not too late for anyone. So I would say to anyone out there, try out setting aside time for unfocused and think a little bit more deeply about this. I mean, this actually goes quite deeply, this aversion to unfocus. Uh, and I, I think one of the ex explanations for why we're afraid to unfocus relates to um, Kierkegaard, who, who, the philosopher who said, you know, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And really what he was saying here was that we all say we want to be free, right? So when your mind roaming is sort of an incredible emblem of that freedom. Yet when the mind starts to roam, you start to feel like you don't have gravity. And so you build balls and chains into your life to prevent that freedom. We are, in fact, ambivalent about freedom. And so at a much deeper level, I think we need to examine our ambivalence about this and give ourselves permission to be free. Because in reality, if you do, and you do this with your mind, you will increase your creativity and productivity as well. Yeah, and I love what you're saying there about just giving yourself that time and, and allowing yourself the time. And, and one of the ways to share with you how I've managed to do it and make it look normal, and not, not that it's not normal, this is the problem, is using the Pomodoro technique where you do focused work for 35 minutes and then you take a 10-minute break. And I use an app and I put it on my desk so my colleagues see it and they know not to disturb me during the focus time. And I find that my productivity soars as, as an example. And then when I read your book, I, it was like I layered it over I went, oh, now I understand why this is working so much. And my brain is actually just getting respite and it's refreshing itself. And there, therefore, my work's more productive, my deep work. That resonates with me so deeply. You know, I, to get into medical school, you have to work hard. So I worked hard and I did, I did well in my first year. But I found that by the time I got to the second year of medical school, I was working all hours of the day and night because the workload was so hard. I mean, I literally would go to sleep with bones all over my face because I was trying to learn the different attachments. And, you know, we had a set of bones where we had to work with those bones the whole day. I, I then asked myself, you know, I, I performed in a very mediocre way in second year, and it was a rude shock and awakening. And in my third year, I decided I was changing my habits completely. I, I only worked for 45 minutes at a time, took 15 minute breaks in between, started socializing a bit more regularly also started meditating. I mean, I did a lot of things that were unfocused. And what was interesting to me was that my results soared. I, you know, I, I reached the top of my class. I was the same person. But I think I was able to do that because I was giving my brain a break and I wasn't just working continuously. And I fall into this trap all the time, right? Even though I wrote a book on it, I mean, I sometimes find myself working continuously. And so I ask myself, wait a minute, like, I just wrote a book on this. Why don't I remember that it's okay to take some time off. And it's more than okay, it's a way to prepare my brain to make deeper decisions and to make more intelligent decisions. You know, I, you know one of the things that I find interesting about Einstein's idea about um, Unfocus was that when, when he describes his theory of relativity, which by the way, was also inspired by the French mathematician Poincare, Picasso and Einstein both had groups of people, think tanks, 
you know, in the case of Picasso, avant-garde literati, you know, but they both had t- think tanks. And Poincare was a brilliant mathematician, except that he represented reality as he saw it. So for him, perception was a, was the guiding principle. Whereas Einstein took Poincare's theories and then asked the question, what if? And by asking that question, extended it by just a few steps to develop the theory of relativity. And when people asked Einstein, well, you know, that's an amazing discovery. It must have taken a lot of rigor of thought. It's like, well, what Einstein said was, I, this was actually like a musical experience. It, and it came to me through intuition. Now, intuition and musical experiences, while they are informed by structured work a lot of the time, they don't occur in of themselves by structured rational thought. There is something about non-rational thought that's really beautiful. I mean, if you look at a Basquiat painting or a representation by Pollock or Hearst, I mean, a lot of what you're looking at there is unstructured thought that that represents the complexity of a person. And I think on on a day-to-day level, people ignore their own complexity and their ingenuity. And by this, I don't just mean to be, you know, a kind of inspiring self-help, like you can do it, you can do anything. I just think there's a lot of data to to show this. And and I think one very profound um, set of experiments is the the one laptop per child project where they drop these uh, tablets, technology, in rural Ethiopia with kids who had never seen any kind of technology at all. And, you know, a lot of people wondered what would they do with this? Would they sit on it? Would they try to eat it? Like, what would you do if you had never, ever seen technology before? Well, would you go to technology school to learn how to use it? Well, within a couple of hours, one of the children found the on-off button. You know, within a couple of days, they were singing ABC songs and using a large number of apps. You know, and within a couple of weeks, oh, actually, it was within a couple of months that that they hacked Android. Now, you know, you might ask, how do you hack Android if you're a rural Ethiopian who's never seen technology before? It's because you've decided that in in, in some ways you have no choice. You didn't go to computer science school so what you have is curiosity and ingenuity. And I think one of the greatest wastes of energy in the world is not just electrical energy outside of us, it's electrical energy in the brain. We lose contact with this ingenuity because somehow we feel that intelligence is equivalent to education. You know, it's like, how did I do at school? How did I perform at school? For me, one of the drivers about wanting to do well was an early realization that school is great for structuring intelligence, but it doesn't give it to us. Like we are born with this ability to access that. I think the Ethiopian kids are a living example of what this is. And actually there's a school in San Francisco that I visited that I really loved. It was called Brightworks and the summer school was called Tinkering School. And it was the kind of school my parents would never have sent me to because they would have said, you know, I don't think there's a structured education there. But because you know, when I went there, the kids were learning how to paint the way they learned how to paint in their summer school was that they would drop paint-filled balloons onto a canvas from a raft, and there would be nails on that canvas, and it would splatter everywhere. And you could, it would actually look like a Jackson Pollock painting when you looked at it. It was like, wow, look at this level of communal creation and some kind of abstraction. It's sort of amazing. And you know, they, were, they, they didn't work by grades. There were kids who were like six or seven who were in the same class as people who were 13 or 14, they had themes like nails. Some people would make a chair. Some people would write a screenplay. And, you know, with a school like that, it's very frightening. Like you would think, how are they going to learn math? There's no formal math instruction. How are they going to learn languages? There's no formal language instruction. Well, 
I think it was something like by the fifth grade, there were two grades ahead of the national average. And here again, it's because curiosity and inspiration are two things that we've just eliminated from our lives. We ask, how do I do this? And then we follow someone else's instruction and we do it. And in the process, we are losing touch with the brilliance that every human being has. It's this uniqueness that you want to tap into. And I think the more we realize what we're giving up, you know, if we started to behave a little bit more like those Ethiopian kids and started being curious and didn't think we needed some kind of formal instruction, we likely will access, would access a much higher level of intelligence in ourselves that we're just ignoring. Yeah, and when you think about, you mentioned children there, for example, we do this to our own children. So a child starts to do something, we go, no, that's not the way you do it. You do it this way. And you start passing on the way, I'm doing air quotes here, the way things are done. And then we're the same adults who complain in the company where we kind of go, oh, we tried that already, or that doesn't work. We tried it already. And we complain about that. Yet we're passing on that same mindset to our children. I always think about this, Srini, and I, I love this in the book where if we can take some of the examples you give and implement them in our own lives, and then also impart that to our own children. Like one of the things I see, for example, is Lego. So Lego is a phenomenal tool for, for learning and creativity and imagination. Yet most Lego sets now come with instructions exactly how to make the Lego. And those free boxes of Lego, as in the open boxes with the random pieces that we grew up with, are very hard to come by these days. And I say to my kids, don't bother with the instructions. Just build what you want to build. Build what's in your mind. And it's almost if we could bottle that and allow our children to almost teach us or we can learn from them and look at them and kind of go, okay, what have I lost that they are seeing and how can I, how can I learn from them? Absolutely. I mean, I think imagination is very, imagination is very, it's, it's given short shrift. A lot of people base their lives on reality, right? If you're not making enough money, how can I realistically make more money? If you're not in a good relationship, how can I realistically find a good relationship? If you're not doing everything, is how can I realistically do this, that, and the other? But the truth is, no great thing ever came from reality. It came from imagination. You know, the, the airplane, the internet, you know, any kind of great sort of large invention came because somebody first imagined it. And we've lost touch with this imagination. We are afraid to go to the land of fiction in our brains. But the land of fiction contains the puzzle pieces for the future. And it lives in the unfocused circuit. So to the extent that we don't visit the land of fiction, we never will be able to build something unique. And so I always say to people, if you are grounded in reality, that's obviously great for a lot of us for a lot of the day. But please set aside some time to visit your imagination because your imagination contains the building blocks that you can combine in unique ways for the future. And there are lots of studies that actually show that future-oriented thinking requires actually relying on the imagination circuits and on the unfocused circuits. In fact, even investors, people who have to do a pretty critical task of deciding which stock is going to rise, which stock is going to fall, this all comes from activating the unfocused circuit and the focused circuit. Because if you don't take time off, your brain doesn't have the time to collate information. It doesn't have the time to put puzzle pieces together. So you're sitting with a gold mine of information in your head, but you've just not created the time to be able to put these puzzle pieces together. And as it relates to the self, you know, I always say focus is great, 
it will activate the parts of your identity that can metaphorically be picked up with a fork. So I would say to people, you know, it's like your LinkedIn profile. This is my gender. This is where I live. This is the work I did. This is my history. This is the school I went to. That's great. But for most of us, our LinkedIn profiles do not communicate who we are fully as human beings. Uh, And so to actually activate these more subtle elements and to activate these emotions, the brain, when you are unfocused and you build these 15-minute segments into your day, your brain metaphorically invites other silverware to the table. So it will invite, for example, a spoon to pick up the delicious melange of flavors of your identity. You know, maybe the scent of your grandmother, which may have no relevance to the task at hand, but it fills you with a sense of meaning. Or it might invite chopsticks that make connections across the brain. Or it might invite a marrow spoon or a toothpick, depending on your preference for that metaphor, which digs into the into the nooks and crannies of your brain and actually finds little bits of memory and little bits of, of self that you can put together in a unique way. And so all of a sudden, by building unfocus into your day, what you have is a sense of self and a sense of self-possession that can motivate you. And a lot of studies, you know, a lot of people believe they can get to their goals if they use a lot of effort. But I think effort is overrated. I think, you know, effort is, is, is turning yourself into a slave. Like, I think you want to be an inspired human. And you cannot access inspiration if you don't build these unfocused times into your day because you won't invite the other silverware that I just talked about that will actually strengthen your identity. And I think to a large extent, if you ask any artist, for example, or any scientist, you know, how do they achieve what they achieve? They achieve this because they work really hard and then they take that time off. And when the mind is floating away, that's when you're guided to these Eureka insights. You know, a, a lot of people don't realize that when the unfocused circuit is turned on, when your mind is wandering, there is the guiding part of your brain, the lateral frontal cortex, that is also guiding this wandering brain. It's not completely wild. Something in you knows where your mind needs to go, and it will guide you there. So learning to trust that process, I think, is incredibly important. You know, I think in real life, you see this in things like a figure skater, for example, who might, a brilliant figure skater is not somebody who just technically executes the movements. A brilliant figure skater is somebody who you can see in the midst of a triple toe loop will actually give himself or herself to the music and then turn around and twirl around because there is this moment of surrender that really, uh, I think, exemplifies the height of one's own art. And I think that anyone's art needs to engage and develop this moment of surrender. For tennis players, they talk about it as if it was too tight. So if you become looser, then you actually learn how to move about the court in a much more effective way. And there are so many other examples where surrender is really key for the peak expression of your art. And so I would recommend that building in this time into your day, whether it is just to engage your body in swimming, whether it's going for a run, whether it's dancing to some kind of music, build this unfocus into your day so that you can reap the rewards of everything that you've been given. I love that. I love that, Shrini. And and one thing that dawned on me during that was you give the example in the book of an Italian restaurant that makes the best spaghetti bolognese and people try to copy it, they can't replicate it. And I, I truly believe this as well. It's the energy or the, you know, it might be that the cook has grandmama's recipe and 
they're playing Italian music in the background as well. And it's the melange of those things as well that brings this beautiful dish together. It's not just the focus work. It's a connection of their past memories, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can actually use that as a framework for business, you get a much better result at the end. Absolutely. I mean, I, I really believe that because I think you can take two chefs who are using the identical ingredients. Uh, and I'm pretty certain that this, I'm sure at some point we'll be able to measure this. But I think the pace of the addition of the ingredients is to a large extent directed by the power of the memories that you hold and the feeling that you hold in your heart while you're cooking. So I don't even think it necessarily will eventually be that abstract. I think the ways in which we cook will to a large extent be dependent upon bringing these other energies that will change how you stir the food, how you how you look at the food and when you add different things. So, you know, I, I think the art of life and, and the fact that we are subjective human beings is as important as anything else. And and that's another reason that I would that I would recommend unfocus as well. And and, and on that, Srini, if you think of a business and take that analogy of the chef and you go when everybody in the company is focused and everybody's energy is pointed in the same direction, like I, I really do believe that's why you get magical results as a result of, of harmonizing the entire culture and then harmonizing people and where their effort is pointed. Well, I mean, there's actually been a study that was done where they took nine groups of people and they had, uh, they had them break out to solve a problem. And there were three people per group. And what they found was they, at the end of that, they asked them to report back. And so they asked a group of, of external people to judge who would be chosen as the leader. And they were able to choose seven of the nine people. But the one variable that allowed them to choose nine out of nine people was that they had hooked up their brains to brainwave machines or EEGs. And what they found, and they did a very sort of detailed st statistical analysis to find this out, what they found was that the people... The people who were leaders were the people who, who, within 23 seconds, were able to synchronize their brains with followers. So to that, to that extent, I think your point about synchrony is, is important because a leader will seek to synchronize his or her brain with that of followers. And you can actually see this on brain scans as well. And there's a very specific way that you can actually teach this to companies too. That makes total sense as well. But the one thing that, that dawned on me, and you talk about this in the book, is how the brain, when you give the brain a, a, a task, and even if that task doesn't re exist today, so it's it's a dream or a vision or, or a desire you have, the brain, if you use it right, will actually become a private investigator to find ways to, to make that happen. And it, it really resonated with me when, when you overlay that with the law of attraction, for example. And I'd love to get your view because you give a view on this and it's a scientific view, which I love. It's it's actually based in, in psychology, et cetera, et cetera. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, I, you know, I think when people think about the law of attraction, a lot of people are disdainful because they've been they put their checks in their drawers and hoping to attract something and it doesn't come their way. But what we don't recognize is that we often attract what is inside ourselves. So, and there are lots of examples of this. So, you know, for example, we have mirror neurons, which are neurons that reflect the emotions of others automatically. So if you enter a discussion or a negotiation or a board meeting with, ne with negative feelings in you, everyone else has mirror neurons. They will pick this up no matter what you're saying. Even if you're trying to cover this up, they will pick this up 
and this negativity will be spread throughout that group. Whereas if you enter with a positive, a genuine and authentic positivity, the rest of the group begins to feel that. And you know this because there are certain people who just turn you off immediately because of how they are. But if there's something positive within them, you attract that positivity because mirror neurons help to first sort of make that emotion contagious and then they spread that. You know, the second thing is that when we think about the, the law of attraction, you know, I mean, part of it is developing the sense of possibility, right? Because most of your actually great work that your brain is doing is under the radar, it's unconscious. So saying, I think this is possible, keeps your brain online and your brain tries to figure that out and get you to your goal. When you say to your brain, ah, that's not gonna happen, your brain says, thank you, good night, I'm going to sleep. And your brain goes to sleep. So you're not gonna even have a chance of attracting what you need into your life because your brain is not on board because it thinks that you can't actually get somewhere. I think the other piece of this when it comes to the law of attraction is imagination. You know, there are ways in which images are more likely to stimulate the brain than other ways. And in the book, I describe a detailed process by which you can build an image to actually stimulate the brain. And because Im images stimulate the action brain, the images will help move your brain toward what you need. But a lot of us take two minutes, imagine a great house, and then forget about it. We're not really building that image in our brains so that our brains can start to figure out how they can get there. And so being able to build a strong image is an important part of the law of attraction and will actually allow our brains to take us to our goals. So those are some of the ways in which I think the law of attraction can factor into your life, that, that by, by embodying what you want, you can often get there. It's that embodiment that's important. Brilliant. And, and when you overlay that with what you said earlier on about the embodying of certain character, etc., it's that opening up the possibility. And uh, it's a great way to finish because we're coming into a new year and it's why I wanted to ask the question about law of attraction, etc., but also the tools that you give in this book, which I highly, highly recommend, are key, I suppose. And, and if we can all build in even a couple of them throughout the year, and maybe we rotate and do one every day across the five days of a work week, that would be fabulous. But Srini Pillay, CEO of Neuro Business Group, part-time assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and author of Think Less, Learn More, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.